they, they said something like, um, we wish um, this trial used overall survival rather than progression-free survival as an endpoint. But then they continued on to say that actually that trial design feature was approved by European medicines agency's own scientific advice that was given to the company years earlier. Cancer drugs are particularly interesting when it comes to looking at how new pharmaceuticals get into practice. This class of drug is often expedited to offer the chance of life-extending treatment to those suffering from advanced cancers. Then, once they pass that hurdle, they hit the market and become the most expensive drugs that a health system has to pay for. That means the data going into those various points of decision-making should be the best we can create. But a new study published today on bmj.com says that the pivotal RCTs, those key trials that we use for our decision-making, are potentially biased. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and this week I went to the London School of Economics to talk to Hussein Nechi, Assistant Professor of Health Policy, and one of the authors of that paper. It was two years ago, almost exactly, that you published with us, um, again, about European Medicine Agency approval of cancer drugs. And there you were looking at the outcome measures um, that they were using and the fact that they were there were lots of surrogate outcomes, it wasn't sort of patient-centred outcomes. Uh, here, you're looking at the risk of bias in the trials that are given to the EMA to get regulatory approval, again, for cancer drugs. What's your fixation with the EMA and uh, with cancer drugs? Um, well, uh, I don't think it's much of a fixation <laughs> other than the, the fact that um, I think cancer drugs are really a very important area to focus on in recent years. Um, as we say in the paper, um, almost a third of all new drugs approved in recent years have been for various cancers. And this is really a growing um, area um, in terms of regulatory focus. And when we look at products that are in development uh, in clinical trials, for instance, again, a growing share of products in development are also for cancers. And we're seeing that healthcare systems are spending a lot of money on cancer drugs. Um, according to um, this company called ICVIA, which monitors the pharmaceutical industry and, and, and trends in, in the pharmaceutical industry, about 150 billion US dollars were spent on cancer drugs in 2018 alone, um, which I think translates to about 120 billion um, pounds. Um, and I think there was about a 15% increase from 2017 to 2018, which is really remarkable. And this increase in recent years is very much because cancer drugs are really, really expensive. In the US, we would see routinely new cancer drugs are coming on the market costing above $100,000 per year per patient. So this is really a very important um, area to focus on. And the fact that cancer drugs are now the single largest category of drug approvals makes it a very interesting area for me as a health policy researcher to, to focus on this. I mean, I, I joked about you being fixated, but actually, as someone who cares about the way the whole system works, I mean, it's it's a really good way to to get in there and start unpicking some of the problems with the way we um, we approve drugs. So in this, as I said, what you've done is look at the 
uh, RCTs given to the EMA um, as part of their approval process. Now, you've done something that seems, in retrospect, really obvious to do, which is use the Cochrane um, risk of bias tool to actually look at those RCTs and work out if they're at risk of bias. I'm kind of surprised that that hasn't been done before. What was going through your head when you when you were thinking about you know starting this? So as you said, we've done quite a few studies looking at um, kind of the evidence base that supports drug approvals, both in the US as well as in Europe in recent years. And in those previous studies done by other researchers, um, as well as um, uh, our group at LSE and King's College London and, and other institutions, we tend to stop by saying that you know the vast majority of drugs approved in recent years have been approved by approved on the basis of randomized controlled trials. And we say, look, this is a good thing because these are the gold standard for evaluating the clinical efficacy of drugs, and. We, we, we felt that it was no longer sufficient to just stop there because we know also from decades of research that even randomized controlled trials, although they're the strongest designs, they can be, um, they can have problems. There may be flaws in the way that they're designed, the way that they're conducted, analyzed, or reported that may result in potentially biased results, so more exaggerated findings, more favorable findings for the experimental treatment. And the fact that this was not done for such an important area, um, uh, which is cancer drug approvals, we felt that it was important and timely to do this. Mm. And the other thing that occurs to me is, you know, this should be, it's almost like the pinch of salt to take when looking at, uh, at any evidence is how much could this have been biased uh, in favor of, uh, of the drug company? And so is this part of EMA's process? So it's important to note that we're using EMA's own regulatory documents um, as part of our assessment, in addition to using uh, the published reports of trials and their supplementary appendices and protocols and clinical trials registry. So we're really relying on quite a comprehensive set of documents. Mm. But the European EMA, the European regulatory agencies' um, own documents are quite detailed because they do some of this assessment. Um, but what's interesting from our perspective is that their assessment may not be as structured or systematic as what would go into a Cochrane risk of bias tool. Um, because the Cochrane risk of bias tool and the revised version, which is what we're using in this study, um, and it's been recently revised, I think the paper was published in the BMJ just two weeks ago, coincidentally, um, it focuses on a comprehensive set of domains within randomized controlled trials that could lead to bias in randomized controlled trial results. So the fact that the EMA does some of this assessment, but not in as structured of a way, um, I think provides an opportunity um, for, for them to potentially adopt a more structured approach and potentially take our results um, and, and use them to kind of influence or improve um, or adapt the way that they're doing their own assessments. Mm. And let's get onto that um, in a little bit. But before then, I wanted to talk a little bit about what that bias potentially does to you know the regulatory process. Um, so obviously, you know, it could be a way of of increased efficacy of a drug, which might be important in this uh, context. Do we know how much it might be affecting results by? You know, it could be a little tweak. It could be enormous. Do we know kind of what extent 
that is and, and any other ways in which bias might be kind of, you know, gaming the system. So I think it's important to note at the outset that our study is looking at risk of bias rather than bias itself. Um, therefore, it's almost impossible for us to say, looking at a specific trial, that the results are biased in that particular trial. All we can do is to point out some of the methodological deficits that we know from previous empirical research or theoretical considerations, that if those deficits are there, then it's likely that the trial results may be more favorable for the experimental treatment. So we know from previous research um, that, for instance, if you have a trial um, that has a subjective outcome, that's you know, an outcome like progression-free survival, for instance, in cancer trials that has some element of subjectivity in the way that it's assessed. And it's the outcome is actually being assessed by people who are not blinded to which patient is receiving what treatment. Then on average, we would expect the trial that has no blinding of outcome assessment for a subjective outcome to be um, to be exaggerated on average by about 22%, according to what we know from previous studies. So that's an average. Um, and um, it's important to, again, note that we have no way of saying and concluding that that's what we're observing here, but that's what we'd, we would expect on the basis of Again, looking across different therapeutic areas, what previous researchers have concluded when those types of issues arise in randomized controlled trials. Mm. You know, 22%, I don't know how meaningful that is, but it's just important to note that it's not trivial. And it can really change the way that we would interpret the results, both by regulators and also in clinical practice. Mm. And I mean, could 22% be the difference between regulatory approval and not? Again, a difficult question, um, and this is not based on our study, but there was a previous, a very recent study uh, by Ian Tannock and colleagues, uh, which was published in Lancet Oncology um, a few months ago, showing the fragility of the results of cancer drug trials. Uh, and, and in that particular study, they were focusing on the FDA approvals of cancer drugs. And what they showed was that um, even a few Outcome data um, for uh, outcome data for a few patients may actually reverse the statistical significance of the results in some cancer drug trials. So it could come down to only a few events, and whether those are miscategorized or um, uh, if there was any bias in the way that they were assessed. So it could be really, um, really what 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 appears to be minuscule differences could actually result in quite major differences in the way that we interpret and understand the results. Mm. And then that goes on, as you say, at, at, at the beginning, those drugs get approved, they're incredibly expensive, they'll spend a fortune on it. So, you know, the downstream effect of that potential bias um, can be enormous. So let's jump into um, what you did when you actually kind of ran the Cochrane Risk of Bias um, tool uh, on all of these trials. Um, how many were at risk of bias and um, what kind of potential biases were we seeing? So maybe I can give you an overview of our kind of um, uh, results. Um, so we started out with 32 new cancer drugs that were approved by the EMA from 2014 to 2016, which is our study period. And we found five of those drugs were actually approved without any randomized controlled trial evidence, which leaves 27 new cancer drugs that were approved by at least one RCT during our study period. Out of those 27, 11 
of the new cancer drugs were supported by trials that we judged to be at high risk of bias. So that leaves 16 new cancer drugs approved during this period, which is half of the 32, that had at least one RCT that was at low risk of bias. And our analysis didn't stop there with the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool, uh, which focuses on the internal validity of the findings, so the way that the trials are designed, conducted, analyzed, and reported. And we went a step further and we looked into regulatory documents to try to see if regulators identified additional issues, concerns, questions to criticize about the trials. Not about the internal validity, but about other things, such as whether the patient populations are actually relevant or similar to those that we see in clinical practice in Europe, whether the comparators are appropriate, whether the endpoints are appropriate, or whether the magnitude of clinical benefit is actually clinically meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, and out of those 16 drugs, seven actually had additional concerns raised by the EMA's Committee for Medicinal Products for Human, Human Use, which is the main decision-making committee of the EMA. So down to nine then? Down to nine that had at least one RCT at low risk of bias and without major criticism from the EMA's committee, which is a quarter of um, all new cancer drugs approved during this period. Mm. Now, we've been quite careful at saying, you know, risk of bias all through this. Um, is there a way to tell if something is just at risk of bias or whether it is actually a bias study at this point? So that's really difficult to answer, um, and mainly because it's almost impossible, as I mentioned, to know if a given trial that's that we're seeing in front of us, uh, it may have methodological deficits, but it may still be free of biased results. Um, what we would essentially need to have is the particular trial that we're looking at and a counterfactual of that trial without the methodological deficits to see if the results are identical or not. So in our sample, there were a few instances where we found empirical evidence of potential bias. Um, for instance, if a, if a trial, and we give examples of this in the discussion section of our paper, um, which is available online, of course, um, where a trial that had um, no blinding of outcome assessment produced more exaggerated results compared to the same trial when the outcome was assessed by a centralized, independent, blinded committee. So there is some evidence that we already found in the sample of trials that we're looking at, but across the board, it's, it's, I think it would be very um, uh, difficult to say whether what we're finding will translate to biased results. Mm. And you kind of mentioned this already, but it's not just you know potential risk of bias that's, that's wrong with these. Um, the EMA themselves have picked up methodological flaws in, in quite a few of the, the studies there. What, what kind of things are they spotting? Um, so the it's, it's really remarkable and, and fascinating to read these regulatory documents because they're really revealing of the types of discussions that happen when the committee meets to discuss whether to approve a particular drug or not. And the types of things that they focus on, again, would be things like whether the patient population is relevant for clinical practice, whether the outcomes are appropriate, whether the comparators are appropriate, or if it's the whether the magnitude of benefit is clinically meaningful. Um, and again, there are 
we, we give some examples of all of the instances where we find any kind of uh, what we consider to be major criticisms raised by the EMA's committee members. And in some of these cases, actually in four cases, the EMA's committee had a divergent opinion that goes on record. So there is um, at least a few committee members that refuse to vote in support of approving this particular drug with their reasons, which is really, really interesting. And again, we highlight those in the paper. And that may be due to the fact that they consider the magnitude of benefit that's observed with that particular drug in that particular trial to be not very meaningful for clinical practice, not very informative. Um, and in some cases, the uncertainty is simply too high to uh, use the evidence to inform decision-making in practice. Mm. You know, in the context of the previous um, study that you published with us, looking at you know, patient-centered outcomes um, and the fact that so many of these are based on you know, surrogate outcomes, um, and then we find out that what happens, you know, the data supporting those surrogate outcomes is potentially a risk of bias, and and that could be exaggerated again. We're getting even further away from, you know, what really matters to patients. And I think that's really important to highlight that what we find in this study is that fewer trials that actually measure overall survival as either their primary endpoints or co-primary endpoints were at high risk of bias according to the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool that we used, compared to the number of trials measuring progression-free survival as, uh, as, as endpoints, for instance. And I think this contributes to the equation um, that we think or recommend regulators and trialists should you know, consider when they're deciding what to measure in a cancer drug trial. We often hear arguments about the feasibility advantages or benefits of having a surrogate measure in a cancer drug trial because you can you can examine the outcomes much earlier on the basis of fewer patients and the trial would cost a lot less. So that's the feasibility advantage. But we also know that um, there are several disadvantages of using these surrogates, as you've mentioned, and, and we also discussed in our previous paper. And these include things like you know, patients and clinicians may overestimate the magnitude of benefit associated with these drugs, with these um, surrogate measures. They may misinterpret this evidence. They may wrongly conclude that they will live longer on the basis of these uh, surrogate measures. And the association between surrogate measures and things like overall survival or quality of life, things that patients really care about, is really tenuous. This is um, a relationship that's weak to moderate at best. Um, therefore, it's really important to know the strength of that relationship or the association. And bear in mind also that if a drug comes on the market without overall survival benefits, we may never have that evidence in the product's life cycle because companies have very little evidence, very little incentive to generate that evidence. And we've seen that in our previous paper that 90% of drugs without that evidence at the time of approval remained without overall survival evidence five years down the line. So if we don't have it, we will likely never have it. So what this paper contributes to this equation is that also the trials that measure overall survival are at lower risk of bias. And that's because overall survival is largely immune to many of those methodological deficits that we focus on, such as missing outcome data or 
measurement of the outcome. It's an objective outcome. Um, even if patients withdraw their consent to contribute outcome data, you may still observe whether they continue living or not. Um, and there's no subjectivity in the way that it's measured and so on. So on average, we would expect trials to be more robust if they were to measure overall survival. So the picture you're sketching here is of this, it's not great data being submitted as part of the, the regulatory approval process, which really kind of begs the question of what can we do to make sure that the data that underpins our approval of drugs is better? Should there be some minimum standards? Should there be, we have reporting guidelines, we have guidelines for how to design trials? Should there be some minimum standards based on on them? I'm just wondering, you know, how could we actually start to unpick this as a problem? Um, I think it's important to acknowledge, as we do in the paper, that uh, cancer, although, uh, again, a very important area, growing, um, uh, it's, it's growing in importance in the regulatory setting, it's very complex in the way that trials are done in this particular area. So some of the things that we're spotting may be unavoidable. So one issue that comes uh, that, that we found quite frequently is uh, due to missing outcome data. In some trials, patients simply withdraw their consent during the trial to continue participating in the trial. So in those cases, it may be unavoidable that some outcome data may be missing and the proportions of missing outcome data may differ between the trial arms. So in those cases, there may not be much to do other than just test the sensitivity of the findings to those potentially uh, missing outcome data. Um, but in other cases, there are things that trialists can do and regulators can requ request from uh, companies, such as you know, getting randomization rights, making sure that the process to allocate patients into different groups is using a truly random process and the allocation sequence is concealed. You know, that um, if a trial is blinded, can we make sure that it remains blinded? And in cancer trials, this may be very, very difficult to do. And we've found instances where the EMA scientists themselves acknowledge that something like um, in, in cancer trials, blinding can always be questioned. But when we look at the EMA reports or the scientific publications, we don't see any discussion about whether the trial's blinding has been compromised or not. Now, this matters, especially when the trial is measuring a subjective outcome, because if an investigator is no longer blinded, or if they can correctly guess which treatment is receiving, which patient is receiving what treatment, then it's very likely that that information, that knowledge may actually influence how they're assessing a subjective outcome, such as progression-free survival. Mm -hmm. So That's the 22% potentially that you uh, talked about earlier. Right. Um, so there are things that can be done to make sure that, first of all, what we recommend is distinguish between things that are avoidable versus not, avoid not avoidable, not feasible in complex cancer trials. I think that's completely acceptable, that there will be methodological things that are really difficult to address. But it's important to differentiate between those two types of issues. And when there are issues that cannot be avoided, then it should be transparently communicated what the implications of those issues would be so that patients and clinicians can actually interpret that and understand it and then use it to make decisions. Mm. I mean, transparency seems to be the solution to a lot of right. the problems uh, that we have with, with these processes. Um, it seems like 
checking these things at the point of, you know, submission to a regulator, it's too late to then go back and, and rerun the trial. It's potentially unethical to do that. It kind of begs the question that what point should, you know, drug companies say, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to conduct our, our study. Um, and what kind of scrutiny needs to be on on that sort of a protocol? Um, so it's, it's really interesting. We found some instances where the EMA's decision-making committee, again, CHMP, um, commented on, for instance, the appropriateness of an outcome. Uh, they, they said something like, um, we wish um, this trial used overall survival rather than progression-free survival as an endpoint. But then they continued on to say that actually that trial design feature was approved by European medicines agencies' own scientific advice that was given to the company years earlier. So there's an opportunity for the regulators when they are interacting with companies when they're at the point of designing these trials, which happens quite early on in the process, to give very clear guidance and expectations about what type of trials are acceptable um, and reasons as to why that is the case. What is really unfortunate from, uh, I mean, to, to, to a researcher like myself who is really interested in these issues, but also I think for wider society, it's really important um, to know what guidance the regulator is giving to the company. And it's really unfortunate that that scientific advice and the contents of that advice, that guidance remains commercial in confidence. We have no access to that information um, because companies consider that to be um, to be uh, really valuable and, and important um, for their commercial interests, not necessarily for societal interests. So there's huge need for transparency, I think, in that and accountability to understand what regulators are asking for and why they're asking for that to make sure that we get the best type of trials that we would want. Mm. And for all parts of the regulators to be kind of on board with the same thing, it seems if there's divergence in opinion there, that's something that the regulator should be looking at and, and working out how to kind of get concurrence. At least a few instances that we've identified, yes. You've been listening to Hussein Nechi talk about this study, design characteristics, risk of bias, and reporting of the randomized controlled trials supporting approvals of cancer drugs by the European Medicines Agency. That's now available on bmj.com. Links, as always, in the podcast text. That's it for this episode, but we'll be back soon with our latest talk evidence. As with all of the topics, if you've got something to say, then do let us know. If you go to bmj.com slash podcast, you'll find out how to get in touch, and we'd love to hear from you. So, until the next episode, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.